0: You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. And who's ready for a Bible study this morning? All right, we're going to pray. I'm going to ask our ushers to uh, get ready to pass out the Bibles and uh, we'll get into God's Word. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, what a joy it is to gather with the cars going by, knowing that people roll down their windows just to listen for a moment, to see people biking by or jogging by, and many of them will stop to stay and to listen. So would your word go out in power? Would your spirit be present in our hearts and our minds so that we would hear your voice speak to us? Lord, you know that I am an imperfect man trying to teach a perfect word, and so would your spirit fill my lips with what is true and right and honoring to you. Lord, we're thankful that we get to gather in person to give praise to the name of Jesus and to grow in Christ with a humble posture before the Word of God today. So open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to what you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. Our uh, ushers will be passing out Bibles. Uh, If you're new with us, you'll get used to the noise, but if a specifically loud motorcycle, car, or ambulance goes by, we just take a pause for a moment. Uh, in your Bibles, we're going to be opening up to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12. And I'll give you a little bit of context to catch you up if you're new, or if you've forgotten where we are. We are in a series called Unexpected Messiah. And the reason why we've called it Unexpected Messiah is because the Jewish people were hoping for a Messiah. They were waiting for a rescuer and a redeemer. And yet the one who came in Jesus, they were not expecting. They were expecting a conquering king or possibly uh, someone who would rescue them from Rome or would have great political prowess. And yet here came a humble carpenter named Jesus from a place called Nazareth in which the Bible says nothing good ever came from Nazareth. And the people did not expect this Messiah. And it's not just the Jewish people in Jesus' day... Oftentimes, we have misunderstandings of who this mighty and powerful Savior is. And so, oftentimes, Jesus is as unexpected to us as he was to those in Jesus' day. And up at this point in the gospel, Jesus is in his early 30s, probably between 30 and 31 years old. And he's been baptized by his cousin John, filled with the Spirit, and led to do his public ministry. He led a private life, a quiet life, for roughly the first 30 years of his life, but beginning at 30 years old, he starts to go out into the region of Judea, the countryside of Jerusalem and even Jerusalem itself. And Jesus begins teaching in the synagogues and in the surrounding areas, and he begins with something called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus taking the Old Testament law And putting God's heart to it. It's like taking the bones of something that people had for a long time and putting flesh and skin on what many people had misunderstood. Jesus also begins working incredible miracles. He gives sight to the blind, He helps the deaf hear. He raises up those who are paralyzed. He raises the dead. He casts out demons. And at this point in his ministry, many, meaning thousands, are beginning to follow him. He's got rock star, superstar status. Everywhere he goes, people want to see and hear what Jesus going to do and what's Jesus going to say next. And whether it's for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, people are coming to Jesus. Just like whether it's for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, people are here today to sit under a tent in a parking lot. Some of you maybe just to see what this is all about. And the beauty of Jesus' ministry is He doesn't care how people get there. What He cares about is their hearts and their souls and their lives and His desire to speak life into their dead and dying bodies. And so this morning we're going to take a look... At a chapter where Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders of his day. Men who were in a position of power and authority in Israel. They were the shepherds of the people, which simply means they were the spiritual guides. They were the pastors helping people. And yet Jesus needs to help them correct their course. For they've been leading people astray. They've been trying really hard. They've had good intentions, but they've missed the heart of God completely in the Old Testament. And so to catch you up a little bit with some context, we're going to go back to chapter 11, and I'm just going to read verses 27 through 30. Jesus is teaching about rest. He says this, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, or who carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Last week we really emphasized that to find rest, is to have more of Jesus and less of us. To find rest is to have more of Jesus and less of us. And what that means is, when our eyes are set on ourselves, for our job, our career, our bank account, our marriage, our parenting, some of those good things, but when it's set on ourselves, we become burdened. We become frustrated. We become worried and anxious. And yet the more we can set our eyes on Jesus Christ... The more we can take his word and hide it in our hearts to believe what he has told us. We then take our eyes off ourselves and we set our eyes on the work that God has called us to. So Jesus is now teaching out of this idea of rest. And we also learned last week, who is the Sabbath rest? It's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of rest itself. It's not about a vacation. It's not about having enough money in a bank account. It's not about having a perfect relationship with every person in your life. Rest comes from setting our eyes on Jesus and pursuing what He calls us to, which is to share the good news and to serve others in tangible ways. And so this morning we pick up in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, And his disciples were hungry. What were his disciples? What were his disciples? They were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so begins our story for this morning. Uh, Israel was an agrarian culture, which just means there was lots of grain fields in that area. And Jesus and his disciples are taking a little stroll on the Sabbath. And in the Jewish calendar, what day was the Sabbath? It was Saturday. It was Saturday. It was their holy day. And there were certain Sabbath regulations or rules provided by the Old Testament that set a precedent for how... The Jews should live according to the Sabbath day. And we look first at Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. When God creates the heavens and the earth, He completes all the universe in how many days? Six days. And on the seventh day, it says that God rested. God creates and initiates a literal pattern for humans to live by. I will give you six days to do your work to make your living, to grow your food. But on the seventh day, I would like you to set that day apart wholly to me. I would like you to set that day apart to not do any work, but to refocus your attention on who I am, on my character, on my promises, on the love that I have for you so that you don't forget within your busy weeks who your God is And that you are my people. This was a healthy pattern of living for the Jews. It's a healthy pattern of living for us. And so Jesus is walking with his disciples on this Sabbath day. And naturally, when you get hungry, what do you do? You eat. You go find a snack or you go eat a meal, depending on what time of day it is. But in general, when we're hungry, we like to eat. Now, it's not like the disciples were sitting down at In-N-Out for two double-doubles, fries, and a milkshake. They were simply just walking through the grain fields, and what they do is they pluck a head, they'd rub it in their hands to get the chaff off the wheat, and then they'd pop the grains in their mouth, and on they went. But here are the religious leaders watching everything that Jesus does because opposition has been growing to him, and here's why. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Jewish religious leaders had a lot of power in Israel. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees were known as the keepers or the experts or the lawyers of the law. And people had high regard for their education and for their training. They were looked at in esteem. They were held up on a pedestal and they let everybody know it too. It's called lording authority over them what they did is they placed these massive burdens on people. And they used the Sabbath law to do this. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, which is when God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, here is one of the laws that God provides in verses 8 through 11. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, which simply means set apart from the other six. You have six days each week, for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, for those of you who have livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. This is part of the Ten Commandments. It's part of being God's people to follow the Sabbath day. Now, what the religious leaders did from that point on is they started to build a little bit, or a lot of bits. As a matter of fact, by the time Jesus came on the scene in the first century, The Jews had created 39 different categories of what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Everything from lighting fires to extinguishing fires, which you couldn't do. About what you could and couldn't carry. You couldn't carry anything in your hands or on your arms, but you could carry something on your elbow, or you could drag it by your ankle, and it wouldn't be considered carrying you could not harvest, you could not winnow, you could not reap, you could not sow. You could not cook in a certain way. You had to have food prepared beforehand. There was a lot of things that you could and couldn't do. Does this sound restful or burdensome? Burdensome. Um, I have four kids and several of them love to be helpers. And you know that as a parent that sometimes, we'll just use washing dishes for example... You have a choice as a parent. You can stand over them and hover and be like, no, that's not the right way. No, that's not it. No, you got to do this. No, you got to do this. And what's your kid never going to want to do ever again? Help. Help. But if you give a kid a sponge and some soap and make the water really bubbly and you just say, hey, clean the dishes the best you can and you go and let them do their thing. It doesn't matter if they clean it well or not. What matters is they start to feel like they're participating in the life of the family and that they have value and matter to what is going on. And here was the case of God's people, Israel, is they felt the burden, but they didn't feel like they had value and matter to the family of God. There were so many rules and regulations that they were being oppressed by their own law, which actually wasn't even the law of God. It was the law of man added to the law of God. And here the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples picking heads of grain. They're like, oh, that's one of the 39 categories. You're harvesting and you're breaking the law. Now, just real quick, why was wheat created? To eat. It was created to eat. It wasn't created so that people could make money, but they do. It wasn't created just to look pretty in a field when it sprouts, but it does. It wasn't created for any other pr- purpose other than to fulfill the needs of the hungry so that they could eat. And isn't it interesting? how those who are with Jesus are being satisfied in practical matters, while those who are with the Pharisees are literally starving. And they're like, man, I wish I could have some grain, but it's against the law. And here we see the picture of Israel. The people were spiritually starving to death. All they wanted was some wheat. They were hungry and they were thirsty. And no one would feed them because there were too many rules and regulations set up by man. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, hey, the purpose of the law isn't to nitpick your lives. The purpose of the law is to allow you to walk in the Lord's blessing while abiding by the guardrails that I've provided so you don't fall off the cliff. Now go. And if you're hungry, I will feed you. And if you're thirsty, I will give you something to drink. Remember Jesus back in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. Oh, what does God care about? Not the nitpicky rules of man. He cares about those who are like, I, I know that I can do better. I know that there is something that I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I know there's a purpose I'm supposed to be filling. And Jesus is like, oh, that's in righteousness. That's found in me. You're hungry and thirsty. Let me feed you. Let me give you something to drink. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees by saying this in verse 3. But Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath... The priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, meaning they work on the Sabbath, and yet they're held blameless. Jesus does something extraordinary here. Oftentimes, it's easy for us to get caught up in this us-versus-them mentality. As modern day Christians who have the blessing on being this side of history, we get a scripture that tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the rescuer and redeemer that Israel had been waiting for for thousands of years. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He died for our sins, bore our shame on the cross, was raised up from the dead, given new life, ascended into heaven, and we know from the scriptures that he will return someday. That is the gospel. And so it's easy for us, who are blessed with that knowledge, to look at the Pharisees and go, gosh, those guys, what a bunch of jerks. But here's what we need to understand about the Pharisees. They were zealous for God's law, which simply means passionate. They wanted to make sure that themselves and everyone else was following it to a T, which is why they expanded on it beyond what was meant to be expanded. They took things so seriously that they tithed, or they gave a tenth of their herb gardens. It said they, they tithed their mint, dill, and cumin. That's how serious they took the law. But in the process, they placed an impossible burden on God's people that hindered them from a relationship with God, specifically with Jesus, because it was all about rules and regulations. And so Jesus does something amazing. He is not an enemy to the Pharisees. He died for you and I as much as he died for those scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees. And he had a desire to see their hearts turn toward him. So he does something incredible. Every time he's confronted, accused, ridiculed, Jesus has this amazing way of asking a question. He asks a question. And here's what he's doing. Jesus meets people where they are. Do you notice the nature of Jesus' question? Let's look in verse 3. He starts by saying this, and it's a little bit humorous. He says, have you not read the Bible? Now, if all you've done for pretty much your entire educational life is study the Old Testament scriptures, how are you feeling when Jesus says, have you ever read the Bible? Oh, he has their attention, doesn't he? They think they're about to take Jesus to school, And yet Jesus is meeting them where they are. Hey, you think you're experts in religious law? You think you know the Old Testament? Let's start there. Let's find the common ground that you know so well. Jesus meets us where we are and then he leads us to where we need to be. Jesus meets us where we are and then he leads us to where we need to be. The purpose of Jesus asking this question isn't just to teach his disciples, isn't just to teach us. I believe Jesus genuinely desired to open the eyes of the Pharisees so that they could better understand the heart of God that they were missing from applying the law to people. Do you do this in your conversations? Right now we are living in a politically and socially charged society. And yet these are matters that are worth discussing because they're important. Are we willing to meet people where they are? Not just demand our way, not just lord authority over them, tell them where they're wrong or where we're right, but are we willing to actually take the time and the thoughtfulness and the gentleness to meet people where they are, to find that common ground for the purpose of furthering our discussion about matters of truth, bringing them back to Christ and back to the gospel. This is what Jesus is doing. He meets us where we are in order to lead us to where we need to be. And so Jesus takes these Bible scholars, these Old Testament geniuses, and he says, hey, have you read the scripture from 1 Samuel chapter 21? You know, the one about David before he's king. And I'm sure in the minds of the Pharisees you are like, Yeah, I know that story. And Jesus goes, good. Well, let's have some more discussion about it. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, David was not yet king of Israel. As a matter of fact, at this season in 1 Samuel, King Saul is so livid and trying to kill David that he's now thrown a spear at his own son Jonathan, the heir to the throne, because Jonathan has sided with David because David is a righteous man after God's own heart. And King Saul, not willing to give up his throne and having rejected the spirit of the Lord, is trying to murder David. And Jonathan comes to his friend David and says, "Listen, dude, you need to get out of here quickly. You need to bail and go somewhere else because the army and my dad is coming after you." So Jesus, or excuse me, with David with a few of his men, leave Jerusalem and they head to a place called Nob. And Nob was also the place where God's tabernacle resided in the Old Testament. If you don't know anything about the tabernacle, God gives directions to Moses. And he says, Moses, I want you to build me a tent of meeting. And this tent of meeting is just what it sounds like. It's where God comes to meet with his people. His presence dwells within the tabernacle. And so David comes to the tabernacle in Nob and he says to the priest, listen, priest we've traveled a long ways. We're really hungry. Do you have anything to eat? Do you see what Jesus is now doing? The Pharisees have accused his disciples of breaking the law on the Sabbath because they were hungry and they plucked heads of grain. Jesus meets them where they are by going right to the foundation of what they think they know and addressing this idea of hunger. Hey, don't you remember that story where David was hungry too? And don't you remember how Technically, he broke the law because what ends up happening is the priest and Nob says, "Listen, we don't have any food, but I do have the showbread that's on the table of the presence of the Lord." Now, according to Jewish law, that bread was only for the priests; it was not meant for anyone else. It was set aside as holy, and yet, because there was a legitimate need, the priest says to David, "Listen, all I have is the showbread, but you're welcome to it." I know that you're hungry, so why not feed you with what we have? And David and his men partake in the showbread, and they move on, and there's no mention of God condemning them. There's no mention that they've sinned. There's no mention that they've done something wrong. And so Jesus takes the Pharisees to this passage for a very specific reason. Guys, they were hungry. So if you have something, you should do what with it? You should feed them. Because this is what Jesus has come to do from a spiritual sense. The people of the earth are starving. They're dying from hunger. And Jesus, as the bread of life, has come to feed them. Not with the law, but with the fulfillment of the law. Not with the work of their own hands, their own righteousness, but by His righteousness. Righteousness. Jesus is exemplifying in this story. Listen, guys, all you see is black and white, cross T's and dotted eyes, and you miss the entire picture of who God actually is. He's a God who desires to feed hungry people, literally and spiritually. He is a God that desires to feed hungry people. Secondly, in verse 5, Jesus then also takes the Pharisees to another place in the Old Testament that they know very well. He says, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? What weren't you supposed to do on the Sabbath day? What weren't you supposed to do on the Sabbath day? What did the priests do all day long on the Sabbath? They worked. They had sacrifices that they had to prepare. They had to kill. They had to offer. It was a lot of work. And yet, are they held in contempt? Are they guilty of sin? No, of course not, because that's not the purpose of the law. The purpose was, hey, set a day aside so that you can set your eyes on Jesus, because it's what's best for you. It's what will help you live an abundant life and the good things that I have for you. Because if you don't, you're like, man, I got to get a leg up. I got to work this. I got to work this Sunday. I got to work on this Sabbath day. I got to make more money. I've got to. And before you know it, again, our eyes are on ourselves and that's when anxiousness and discouragement and frustration and questioning God sets in. And Jesus says, listen, the point of the Sabbath was not to keep people from eating food. The point of the Sabbath was to feast on me, to be full in who I am, to enjoy the bountiful provision of God's word. If you're taking notes today, I want you to write this down. Jesus is not about form over function. Jesus is not about form over function. Uh, Some examples of form over function. How many of you use chapstick or lip balm during the week? It's not like an embarrassing thing. Some people are like, yeah, it's me. I got dry lips. (laughs) Uh, Frito-Lay came out with a chapstick that was Cheeto flavored. Guess how it did? not well. (laughs) Shocker. It had the form. It lacked the function. No one wanted to use it. It was gross. How many of you remember Windows Vista? It destroyed our computers. It was touted to be this amazing thing that was going to make everything faster and better. And as soon as you stuck it on your PC, it just made everything crash. It was a disaster. They had to undo it. I'm convinced it's how Bill Gates got rich. Um, He he ruined his own computers and then made you pay to fix his computer. Genius. Form over function. Or what about Google Glass? Does anybody remember those little things you were supposed to put on and there was the eyepiece and it would tell you all the information you needed? It looked super cool, but it tanked. Billions of dollars wasted by Google because it didn't work properly. Guys, the law at this point in Jesus' life It's simply form over function. It's not taking its proper role. People are going through the motions. People are showing up on Sundays. People are putting their money in the tithe box. People are saying nice things. But the heart of God escaped them. And Jesus sees it. And instead of being angry, He has mercy and compassion and He meets people where they are so that He can lead them to where they need to be. Because they were missing out on the relational piece. The relational aspect of who we are supposed to be in relationship with, which is God. Do you remember the apostle Peter? Peter was the guy who was the foot and mouth guy, but he was the, he's the friend you want to have. He's got your back. And Jesus tells his disciples, he says, hey, all of you will leave me. And betray me. And Peter goes, no, not me, Lord. If everyone else does, not me. I'll be there. I'll die for you. And what happens with Peter? He denies him three times. He says three times to three different people. I don't even know that guy. It even says that he swears by it. And then Peter is grief stricken because he realizes his pride and that he is a fallen man. And it says that he goes and he weeps bitterly. And we get to the end of the gospel of John chapter 21. Jesus has been raised up from the dead and there he is on the shore of Galilee preparing breakfast for his disciples. And it's the first time Jesus and Peter have seen each other since Peter denied him. You can only imagine what that was like. Jesus is like, hey, Peter. Peter's like, hey, how's it going? Fish sticks for breakfast That's great. I love fish sticks. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter responds in humility. God, I know, you know that I like you because he doesn't want to say love because he's learned his lesson. And Jesus gives him a commandment. He says, good, then feed my lambs, meaning God's people, his flock. And Jesus asks Peter the same question two times. And both times, Jesus gives Peter a command. Peter, feed my sheep if you love me. Why does he tell him that? Because God is in the habit of feeding hungry people not lording rules over them. As a parent, I have to work on this. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, parents, but it is so easy to fall into behavior-based parenting. Behavior-based parenting is this. My kid screams in a grocery store. I do something to correct it. A hand to the mouth, a smack to the mouth, duct tape to the mouth, a lollipop in the mouth, a phone to the hands, whatever it is, Just don't scream again. Please tell me as a parent, how does that address the heart of what has happened? It does not. It's simply to keep the behavior from popping up. It doesn't address the heart. You see, Jesus is all about addressing the heart because He's a good parent. He doesn't care just about the behavior issue. He cares about what's causing us to act out the way that we are. What's causing us? Disobey what's causing us to scream? He wants to get to our hearts. Jesus is interested in feeding his people because they're spiritually starving, and the way that he feeds them is through his word, the way that he feeds them is through the body of Christ, the gathering of the church, not just on Sundays but in friendships in relationships, in mission groups, whatever it is, in serving together. He desires to feed hungry people so that not only are we fed, but we now have food to do what with? Ah, to feed other people. This is what Jesus is in the habitant, and the Pharisees don't realize it, but they're actually starving people out by misusing the laws of God. So Jesus continues. He's met the Pharisees where they are, He's given them some Old Testament examples. And now he says in verse six, yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. Oh, this would have set the Pharisees off something fierce. What is Jesus proclaiming that he's who he's making it very clear that he's God. Now, he's already done this in the previous chapter. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, he says, hey, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father and those who reveal it to him. And God has gifted me everything. Everything has been given to me and my command. Jesus has already claimed his messiahship, but he's driving home the point. And here's why. The Pharisees directed everything from God's temple, the literal building that was built out of stone and had all the different artifacts in it, That to them was the pinnacle of faith. What's the problem with that? When you come to the mission church, do we worship a building? No, we don't even have one. We live in a tent. (laughs) Oh, of course not. Do you worship the name, the mission church? You can only be saved if you come to the mission church. Of course not. That's silly. But this is where the Pharisees were stuck. They had built the law into an idol and they used the law to control people under their own authority and power for their own gain, for their own lauding and applause, for their own wealth. And Jesus comes and he says, we need to right this ship. It's broken. One greater than the temple is here. And who is Jesus referring to? Himself. Now, to say that he was greater than the temple was a clear sign that he was saying that he was God. In Mark's gospel, the same story that we're covering today in Matthew 12, Mark records this. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man, which is Jesus, is also Lord of the Sabbath. Um, the Sabbath was not made for Excuse me, the Sabbath was made for man. What does that mean? The Sabbath was made for man. What it means is that the purpose of God creating the Sabbath was so that we could have what? Rest. God was feeding us. The Sabbath was not something that man was supposed to serve, to come under rules and regulations and have to abide by this, and you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. That wasn't the purpose of the Sabbath. It was made so that man could have rest and set their eyes on God, but instead it was causing them to have tremendous burdens and to distract them from an actual relationship with the Messiah who had finally come. Well, What does that look like in our own life? How many of you have adopted philosophies that could be passed down from family or could even be passed down from churches or that your work demands? And hey, just so you know, I'm included in this, not excluded from this. How many of us fall prey to all these rules and regulations of I have to do this and I have to do this? And Jesus is like, no, you don't. What you need in your hunger is to be in relationship with me, to rest in me, not in all those other things that will achieve whatever it is that you think you have to have or you have to do to be successful or valued or worth whatever people think you are. Jesus says, I am greater than the temple. In Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews says this in verses 3 and 4. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses. This is a big deal to Jews, right? Because Moses is like at the pinnacle of Judaism. He's the one who met with God and got the Ten Commandments. And yet the author of Hebrews says Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses. Just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Here is what Jesus is doing. He's telling the Pharisees, whether you know it or not, you've placed the law at God's status and you've completely missed out on the relationship that I want to have with you. And my challenge and encouragement to you to think about this week, is there anything in your life that you have placed above God, in God's status, that is ruling over you instead of you having a relationship with Jesus? Instead of you resting in Him? something that's controlling your life or your mind or your time or your money or whatever it is that you're a slave to. Because for the Jews, it had become the law. And that was a heavy burden to be placed on people who were just trying to live their life like you and me, who had to work, who had to deal with sickness, who had to wrestle with difficult family dynamics and relationships. Jesus desires to take that burden off of them And so he says something important in verse 7. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. He says this. But if you had known what this means. Are you ready to hear what Jesus is going to say is so important? Two of you. Awesome. (laughs) Are you ready to hear what is so important? Jesus says this. I want you to learn this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now Jesus is quoting from an Old Testament book called Hosea, specifically chapter 6, verse 6. Hosea 6, 6. And here's what's so amazing, is the entire scripture that Jesus is referring to says, I desire mercy, not sacrifices. I desire the knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. This is now the second time Jesus has told the Pharisees this. We go back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, where... He's being accused again of eating with sinners and tax collectors and being with disgusting people. And Jesus says, I want you to learn the meaning of this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, there's a couple of things. If we go back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain what? They will obtain mercy. It's part of God's character. It's part of the process of us growing to be more like him is someone who gives mercy because we've received mercy. Because you can't give mercy unless you've received it. And certainly for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we've received mercy through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave so that the power of sin and death has been left dead and we have been raised to new life. We've experienced that mercy. And Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, was sacrifice part of the Old Testament law? Yes, it was. Was burnt offerings part of the Old Testament law? Yes, it was. It was part of atoning for sin. God had made a substitutionary way for people to be absolved or to be forgiven of their sins by offering a sacrifice. It was part of being obedient in the Old Testament. But here's what happened to the people of Israel is they got caught up going through the motions. Well, slept with somebody else. I'll just make a sacrifice on the Sabbath day. Did a shady business deal. No problem. Just make a sacrifice on the Sabbath day. Praise to you, oh Lord, we're glad we're here. I can't wait to get another beer. That's what was happening. In the temple, in the courts, they were just going through the motions because they found that the letter of the law was being upheld unto salvation. And Jesus says that was never the intent. The intent of sacrifices and burnt offerings was for you to see blood spilled so that you would understand the cost of what happens when you sin. It costs a life. And that life is yours. And I made a way for you not to have to lose your life, but to gain it in me. That's what mercy is. That's what the gospel is about. And so Jesus builds off these Old Testament ideals and scriptures that the Pharisees would have known really well. If you're taking notes this morning, write down this passage. Look it up on your own time. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. Through the prophet Isaiah, God is crying out to his people, going, All you do is go through the motions with your festivals and your sacrifices and your offerings, but your heart is so far from me. Here is what I desire justice and mercy and compassion for people. For goodness sakes, that's my character. Let it flow out of you. I don't want all your garbage. I don't need your church attendance. I don't need a 20 in the box. I don't need you to proclaim my name and use words like bless you, God bless you, if you're not going to live it out. I don't need it. But what the world needs is mercy. And I chose you people to be the testimony of my mercy. Another passage for you would be Micah 6, 6-8. through Micah 6, 6-8 through says the same thing great passages in which probably would have come to mind these scholars of the old testament law but jesus is going to take them even deeper he's going to take them deeper into old testament law and this starts to get so cool how many of you were here for john wang last week do you guys remember when john wang said hey God created the heavens and the earth and then there was the separation of sin and so God's up here and we're down here and then, and then he brings the Ten Commandments down to Moses and God is closer and then he brings the tabernacle and now God is kind of dwelling with the people but there's some separation. Do you guys remember that? Here's what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees. That same premise. He takes them back to the Old Testament when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, this term mercy, let's go back to the tabernacle in the temple where the Spirit of God resided. Listen to this, Exodus chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. God says this about the tabernacle and specifically speaking about the ark of the covenant which rested in the Holy of Holies. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you There I will meet with you. Where will God meet with His people? Say that louder. On the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Where does God meet us? In what? Oh, in mercy. From the Old Testament to the New. He's always met His people in mercy. The mercy seat was where God resided. Now, Jesus puts the shovel in even deeper. Quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I love this. If you know about the, the story of Hosea, he is a prophet of God. An old, old Testament prophet. And God says this to Hosea. Prophet of God who speaks before me. Who is righteous in my eyes. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a prostitute. They don't teach you that in Sunday school, do they, kids? I told my high school group one time, yeah, you can't go home and tell your parents. God told me to marry a prostitute. That's not my... God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute. And he says this. He says, when she is unfaithful, I want you to go buy her back. And when she's unfaithful again... I want you to go tell her how much she's worth and bring her back into your house. And when she's unfaithful again, bring her back into your home and tell her how much she's valued and worth and that she doesn't have to go and give herself away because she has a home. And God uses a literal example of Hosea's weird marriage. To be the testimony of what God is doing with His people Israel. Because they kept whoring themselves out to foreign nations and to foreign gods. And God doesn't stop pursuing His people. Because He's on the mercy seat. It's not the seat of the law. It's not the seat of judgment. He meets us at the mercy seat. But it gets even deeper. When Jesus is resurrected from the dead and ascends into heaven. He tells his disciples, I want you to wait for I'm sending one that is important. And who is Jesus telling them to wait for? The Holy Spirit to come upon them. The fullness of God to dwell in man and woman available to us all. And listen to what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us in verse 20. Together we are His house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which is just simply the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Bible. And the cornerstone of that building or that house is Jesus Himself. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy what? A holy what? A holy temple for the Lord. Through Him, you Gentiles or you non-Jewish people are also being made part of His dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. Don't miss this. Where is the mercy seat of God now? It's in you. Because where does God come to dwell? Oh, it's in you. So that when Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifices... He's proclaiming to His people, I want to work through you so that others can see my mercy because everyone needs it. I don't need the facade. I don't need the fake religion. What I want is a relationship with you so that people will see that my character is merciful and I long to forgive regardless of what you've done. Jesus concludes this incredible meeting these men where they are to try to lead them to where they need to be by saying this in verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath, or even of the Sabbath. Here's what's so incredible. It is customary of American Christianity to attend church and to play Christian for two hours or so and then to go right back to where they're living, doing whatever it is they do, without another thought or care in the world. And yet Jesus is challenging that, saying, listen, I am greater than Sunday. I want your Monday through Friday, your Saturday and your Sunday. I want every moment, because you're hungry and I want to feed you, and you're thirsty and I want to give you something to drink. Jesus is greater than Sunday. Is that true for your life? And here's the really cool thing. If you're willing to be honest with yourself and this may be you and you go, actually, no, I just, (laughs) I just show up on Sunday and that's really all I do. Jesus isn't like, ha, got you. Instead, He goes, I have so much more for you, and let's start with mercy. It's okay. Mercy is not permissiveness of sin. It does not not allow people to get away with anything they want to. But mercy is providing grace and undeserved kindness where judgment is deserved. And who is deserving of judgment under this tent? Oh, goodness, all of us. All of us are deserving of judgment. And God says, let me meet you here at the mercy seat. I desire mercy, not sacrifices. It's not about what you can give me. It's about what I've already gifted you and my son, Jesus Christ. Now live it out. Live it out. You still with me this morning? Here's what I love about Jesus. We've just covered the bulk of his teaching. But Jesus hardly ever leaves it just as a teaching. He always does what afterwards? He lives it out. He goes and models it. He puts it into practice. And so here we go, verses 9 through 14. Jesus is about to put this mercy into practice. Now when Jesus had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. That's like their church. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. He had some kind of deformity. There was something wrong with his arm to where it didn't function Properly, The function wasn't working. It was broken. Are you following? And the Pharisees asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the arrogance, the evil? They probably placed this man in the synagogue just to see what Jesus would do. Because they wanted to accuse him so that they could find a way to get rid of him. And it eventually leads to murdering Jesus. But they find this poor man who's not able to function properly. And instead of ministering to him, they prey on him. Because this is what the enemy does when he distorts God's word. He preys on people. And I don't mean this kind of prey. I mean this kind of prey. He desires to stomp on people. And the Pharisees are literally like, hey, who can we find that has a disability that we can use to our advantage? Oh my goodness, that's evil. And look at what Jesus says to this silly question. Again, how many of you would be okay if Jesus like threw a little lightning bolt right now? Anybody? That's why we're not God. What does Jesus do? He goes back to what he does. He meets people where they are in order to lead them to where he needs to be. Even the Pharisees are getting mercy. And he says to them in a practical way, he says, hey, what man is there who that if you have one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? In other words, which one of you has a sheep at home? All right. Which one of you has someone that you love in your life? Wow, that's a lonely church body. Which one of you has someone that you love in your life? Okay, good. Now, how many of you, if that person literally falls into a well, you're like, sorry, I got to go to church. I'll be back tomorrow. Form over function. No, what are you going to do? You're going to help them. You'll send a rope down, tie sheets together, maybe jump in. I don't know. You're going to do whatever it takes to help them. And here's the beauty of what Jesus is saying. This is what I did with you. You were in the pit, dying, drowning. And I reached in and I rescued you. And it didn't have to be on a special day. And it didn't have to be in a special way. All I cared about was that you put your hand up and I said, yeah, that's enough. I got you. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what the mercy seat looks like. And who are we as Christian people to sit on our high horses and watch the trash that the media puts up of certain camera angles and little bits and pieces of what's not true and go, oh, well, maybe they did something wrong. Or, oh, maybe they didn't get trained properly. Who cares? Have some mercy for the situation. Mercy for souls. Not worried about behavior. Not worried about individual Experiences that make life uncomfortable. How about souls that are dying that need to be rescued? This is what Jesus is after. And it brought him great pleasure to do the next part in the scriptures. Of how much more value than is a man than a sheep. Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I love this church family. Don't miss this. Galatians, Paul says this: there is no law against such things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against them. Go freely and do as much of it as you want. Oh, the Jewish people needed to hear that. Because they were bound by the law instead of set free by the one who came to fulfill it. Some of you need to hear that. Stop nitpicking at people. Stop judging people and exercise the fruits of the Spirit. Mercy is a good place to start. It's very awkward. No one ever claps during a sermon. (laughs) So I have a question for you. Jesus tells the man, stretch out your hand. And what does he do for the man? He heals him. Of course he does the man was starving to death he was hungry and jesus simply feeds him it's a physical representation of what jesus came to do spiritually for every person who will receive him as lord and savior but here's my question do you show mercy to others think of someone in your life that you argue with constantly or that you're not on good terms with or that you fight with if it's in marriage here's all I'm asking. Have mercy. And mercy is this, an open heart that if someone needs to ask for forgiveness, that your heart is open enough so that when they do ask for it, that you're willing to give it. Or an open heart of humility to go, you know what? I need mercy. I need to ask for forgiveness. Have mercy in your marriage. Have mercy in your parenting. Man, I look at my my five-year-old and I love that kid, He sticks his hand in his mouth, his other hand in his pants and he walks around and life is easy for him, but he disobeys me sometimes, how old is he, what does he know, nothing, what do we know, maybe a little bit more but not much and God goes, I give you mercy, my children, I give you mercy. Friendships, broken family relationships, maybe church relationships. COVID has done some really interesting things to the church. Some churches are open, some churches are not. And boy, has there been a lot of ridicule towards churches for the decisions they've made. Where is the mercy exemplified in the church? In all honesty, there are good reasons for both. And there are shepherds over those congregations that I believe have the spirit of God and are trying to make the right decisions for the flock where is our mercy towards our leadership as leaders where is our mercy to the people do we condemn people for not being here you're not a real christian if you're not here afraid of covid and dying i sure hope not mercy it's a great place to start The last thing I'll share with you is you are free to do good in Jesus' name. You are free to do good in Jesus' name. This may seem like a simple point, but it amazes me how often we can vince ourselves out of actually doing what is merciful toward others. Whether it's because they don't deserve it, or whether it's because we don't think we're ready for it, or whether it's because it'll cost too much, I don't know, whatever it is. You are free to do good in Jesus' name. There is no law against such things. And Jesus wanted to free his people from being overburdened with nitpicking regulations set up by man to be able to enjoy the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ, that if we have relationship with him and we follow him, we fulfill the law in our worship of who he is. You are free to do good in Jesus' name. So church family, go and learn what it means I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What does that mean for you today? Let's pray together. Lord, what a joy it is to be able to go into the depths of your word and and not even reach the bottom. Lord, how could we ever fully understand the mercy that you've given to us. And yet, we get some understanding through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who died and rose again so that we might live again. Lord, I know there are men and women, young people and older people in this group here today, that both need mercy and also need to extend mercy to others. May we be a people who understands what it means that you desire mercy and not sacrifice. May we be a people that don't just show up on a Sunday and play religion, but that we show up every day of the week humbling ourselves into relationship with Jesus. What a picture in Hosea of pursuing the unlovable the grotesque, the unfaithful. And who are we to withhold that same mercy when that's been done for us? So let us honor and glorify you in our response today. You've initiated mercy for us. Let us respond in mercy to others. Thank you for this time that we have to worship, not just to close out a service because that's the way we do it, but an opportunity That when people roll down their windows as they drive by or they're at the -the jack-in-a-box or the gas station or the subway across the street, would they hear the voices of those who have received mercy this morning? May May we actually sing with that kind of reckless abandon. Our hearts given to you, Jesus, for what you've done. So, Lord, we give you praise now with our voices. In Jesus' name, amen.